next week, you'll remember we're starting a sermon series. This is week two now in our sermon series entitled Mining Scripture, where we attempt to dig deeper in Scripture, not just looking casually at some of our favorite Bible verses, but mining, digging deeper, seeing what God's Word has to say. Last week, we were studying Galatians 6-9, and we realized it's so important to not just read one verse, but to read the setting in which it comes into, the context, the literary context. And sometimes that means you've got to read a few verses before, a few verses afterwards. Other times it means you need to read the whole book. Sometimes all of the writings by that same author. Well, how does Paul use this particular word in his writings? Sometimes it means the whole Bible. Well, today we're going to add to that and look at the historical context. What was happening in the history? Because some verses, it's very important that we know the history behind a passage. If you've ever been to a high school graduation, particularly if it's Christian, especially if it's Christian, or a college graduation, you've probably encountered Jeremiah 29, verse 11. It's a very powerful verse. It's a, it's a lovely verse, and it's so popular because it has such a good message. And it's, it's in that setting where you have a whole bunch of young people, they're sitting there, they're ready to go out and conquer the world. And so it's either their class Bible verse or it's, the, or it's preached from the pulpit. And it, the message is something like this. Go out because God has good plans for you to be successful, to be prosperous. He has good thoughts towards you. That's kind of the message that, that the young people tend to take away from it. And, and wait, I believe that those things are true. God does want us to be successful. But I started thinking, what happens if that person goes out and their life isn't a success? What happens if they really work hard, but they just don't find that prosperity that they hoped for? How does Jeremiah 29, 11 speak into their life? For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans of peace, thoughts of peace, not of evil, to give you a future and a hope. How do they start reflecting upon the verses of Scripture when their life doesn't go the way they hoped it would? How does this, the person in Syria, uh, the Christian there, who fears for their life because of their beliefs, how do they claim a verse and a promise like that? How does a single mom living here in Modesto working multiple minimum wage jobs just to try and survive, just to try and put food on the table for her three children. How does she understand these verses? So it's important, again, as we're trying to mine Scripture, for us to, to ask these questions, to dig deep, and to seek real answers. So put those mining hats on. Get those Bibles out. We're going to Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. And we're going to dig deep this morning, I hope. Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 11. God's word says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Powerful words here. But what is the literary context? What are the words that are surrounding this, because that's something we focused on last week. We need to know what's going on so we can better and accurately understand 
what God is saying. And if you look just, in fact, one verse before, in verse 10, it says, this is what the Lord says when the what? 70 years are completed for what? Babylon. I'm reading from NIV this morning. From Babylon, I will come and fulfill my gracious promise to you and bring you back to this place. So already, just from reading one verse before, we know the, the words that follow in verse 11 have something to do with 70 years, and it has something to do with Babylon. Let's go to verse 1. Let's look at the whole chapter here, or at least the beginning of the chapter. We're finding that this is actually going to be another letter here, a letter from Jeremiah. Jeremiah 29, verse 1. This is the text of the letter that the prophet who? Jeremiah sent from where? Jerusalem to who? To the surviving elders among the exiles, to the priests, to the prophets, and all the other people Nebuchadnezzar had carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Okay, so this is a letter. It's sent from Jerusalem, from Jeremiah. It has the word of the Lord in it, and it's going to the people who were carried away captive by King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. Historically, this is taking place about 600 years before the time Christ lived in the world. So 2,600 years ago, approximately. So already we're starting to see some of the historical significance that's about to build up to verse 11. Now let's notice the text of the letter. It starts in verse 4. This is what the Lord Almighty, God of Israel, says to those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Now, who did verse 1 say, uh, who carried the people into, into Babylon? Nebuchadnezzar. But here, God is claiming responsibility for it. Sometimes you see in the Bible, God claims responsibility for the things that he allows others to do. Ultimately, God created everything. He says, well, the buck stops here with me. Verse 5, he says, build houses and settle down. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Does this sound like it's going to be a very short time or a long time? He's saying, settle down. Do you remember that old Snickers slogan? Going to be a while? Grab a Snickers, they said. <laughs> There's some guy realizing he is going to have to wait for a while, so he pulls out a candy bar. I don't know how that helps, but that was their slogan. God's saying, it's going to be a really long time. You might as well build houses. You might as well plant gardens. Make the most of it while you can. In fact, verse 6 says, go ahead and get married. Marry and have sons and daughters. Find wives for your sons. Give away your daughters in marriage so that they too may have sons and daughters. Increase in number here. Do not decrease. Now look at verse 7. Also, seek peace and prosperity to the city to which I have carried you into exile. Pray to the Lord for it, because if it prospers, you too will prosper. I appreciated Ed's prayer this morning, praying for our leaders. Wherever you find yourself, whether you're here in America or somewhere else, whether your situation is good or bad, it's an opportunity to pray opportunity to pray. And that's what God was telling the people. Hey, you're going to be here a long time. Make the most of it. And by the way, pray. Seek peace. Seek prosperity for the place you are. And then verse 8. 
talks about these false prophets. Yes, verse 8, this is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Do not let the prophets and diviners among you deceive you. Do not listen to the dreams, or do not listen to the dreams you encourage them to have. They are prophesying lies to you in my name. I have not sent them, declares the Lord. So there are these false prophets. And before the captivity happened, before Nebuchadnezzar came, the false prophets were saying, don't worry about it. God's going to rescue you. The city's going to be fine. Well, Jeremiah was the lone prophet. He's saying, uh-uh. God's saying, you better just surrender. And what happened? The city fell to Nebuchadnezzar in three different stages, actually. Daniel, the prophet Daniel, who wrote the book, was carried away about 605 B.C. Ezekiel and some others were taken in about 597 B.C. And then the city and the temple and everything was pretty much destroyed in 586. So in three phases, there were people carried away, there were things that happened, and destruction that occurred. But God's saying now, you're in the situation, the prophets falsely said, don't, uh, don't worry, you're going to be fine when they weren't going to be fine. Now God's saying, don't listen to the prophets who are saying it's just going to be a short time period. You better build a house, get married, plant a garden, pray for the people, be a blessing to the people because you're going to be there for quite a while. So it's in this context that we now approach verse 10 and 11. Verse 10, which said, you're there for 70 years. And now we get to verse 11, which says, For I know the plans I have for you. So who's he speaking to here? He's speaking to the people who were carried away in Babylon, in exile, there for those 70 years. You, I have plans for you. Plans to prosper you, the people in exile, not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Verse 12, Then you will call upon me and come and pray to me, and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. And I will be found by you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back from captivity. I will gather you from all the nations and places where I have banished you, declares the Lord. I will bring you back to the place from which I carried you into exile. We haven't dug as deep as we're going to dig yet, but are you starting to see maybe a little different picture about this promise? You see, in the Bible, in general, there are two types of promises. There are specific promises, and then there are general, more universal promises. In fact, we'll play a little game here. I'm just going to read or quote or reference a Bible promise, and you just tell me if, it's, if you think it's more of a general promise or more of a specific promise to specific in individuals. Okay, so, John chapter 3 and verse 16, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Is that a specific promise or a general promise? Who says it's general? General? Anyone say that's specific? Okay. Very good. Um, what about this one? Luke chapter 23, in the end of it, there are these words that say, I say unto you today, you'll be with me in paradise spoken to the thief on the cross by Jesus. That's a very specific promise, right? Now, I wish that everybody will go to heaven, amen? amen? But the reality is there are people, there will be people, even people who've read this promise, who will not be in the kingdom. It's a very specific promise. 
What about Hebrews 13, verse 5? I will never leave you or forsake you. What do you think? Is that general or specific? Seems pretty general. Seems to apply to uh, a host of believers across the centuries. Genesis chapter 12, verse 2 and 3. I will make you into a great nation. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. It's pretty specific. Some of us won't have kids. Some of us won't be married. And that's fine. Some of us, when we have kids, we'll only have one or two, right? Okay. Let's do just one or two more. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. No temptation has overtaken you. Such is as common to man. But God is faithful and will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able Is that general or specific? Seems pretty general. And that's so good. No matter what you're tempted by, God has the power to deliver you. How about this one? John 11, 23. Your brother will rise again. That's got to be a promise to all mankind, right? (laughs) Pretty specific promise there Jesus gave to Martha, speaking about Lazarus. So what do you think now? As we look at Jeremiah 29, 11, is that a general promise? Is it a specific promise? It seems like from what we've seen already, it's a pretty specific promise given to a people who are in captivity there in Babylon for 70 years. It seems to be pretty specific. And, and you'll notice that 70 years is a pretty long time to be in captivity. If you were taken and you weren't a really, really young child, If you were taken into captivity, you're probably going to die in captivity. This is not only a promise to a group of people, it's a generational promise. Because there would be many people who wouldn't live to see the fulfillment of the return from captivity. So now some of us are thinking, boy, did Pastor just take away my favorite Bible verse from me? Can I not find hope and encouragement in this passage anymore? You still can, of course. But it's so much better when we understand how God intended for us to understand it by digging deep, seeing the literary, seeing the historical context. So we're going to get to some awesome things that we'll take away. We're going to have two key points. But we're going to dig a little bit deeper before we get there. We're going to go uh, study out this 70-year captivity because we need to understand a little bit better why this thing happened. We need to understand this process a little bit more. But before we go further back in history. I want to call your minds to Romans chapter 1. In Romans chapter 1, Paul the Apostle talks, starting in verse 18, about a word that starts with W and ends in wrath. You know what that word is? Starts with W, ends in wrath. It's it's the word wrath, right? So, I was saying phonetically it ends in wrath. W-R-A-T-H. Okay, so... Paul's talking about the wrath of God, and he talks about how there's a group of people who have evidence for God in their lives. They see God in nature, but they refuse to glorify God. They have awesome opportunities to acknowledge God, to worship Him, but they'd rather turn to created idols and so forth. And there's this downward spiral where they go lower and lower and lower, and eventually God in His wrath, Paul says, hands them over. He turns them over to the natural consequences of their sin. That's what God does. He's like, man, 
Punishment doesn't work. Nothing works. I'm just going to let them do their own thing and see how they like it. Suffer the consequences themselves. Sometimes we learn really good lessons that way. Pray that we don't have to always learn like that, but sometimes that's the only way. So with that in mind, I want us to go back to 2 Chronicles chapter 36 to set the stage for these 70 years of captivity, to better understand the historical circumstances that led the people into Babylon in the first place. 2 Chronicles chapter 36. Second Chronicles chapter 36, and I'm going to start in verse 14. These are the very last words of the, the Chronicles, the history that was written down of the nation of Israel and Judah. Look there at verse 14. It says, Furthermore, all the leaders of the priests and the people became more and more unfaithful, following all the detestable practices of the nations and defiling the temple of the Lord, which he had consecrated in Jerusalem. It sounds like this is a bad time to be alive in, in, in Judah at that moment. Verse 15, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But what was their response in verse 16 to God's messengers, the prophets? They mocked the prophets. They laughed at them. They sneered at them. It says they despised his words, scoffed at his prophets until the what of the Lord? The wrath. The wrath of the Lord was aroused against his people and there was no remedy. So here's a people that are rejecting God time and time again. God sends messengers. He has pity on the people and they will not have any of it. They're saying, na, 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 I'm not listening. And God, in his wrath, is about to do something. Same thing he did in Romans 1. Look at verse 17. He brought up against them the king of the Babylonians, who killed their young men with a sword in the sanctuary, and spared neither young man nor young woman, aged, old man nor aged, and God handed them all over to Nebuchadnezzar. Now I was curious as I was studying this week. I thought, boy... I wonder what the word is in the Greek translation of the Old Testament for handed them over. I wonder if it's the same word. And sure enough, it's the same word, paradoken, that Paul uses in Romans chapter 1, where God's wrath, in his wrath, he simply turns people over. He hands them over to the natural consequences of their sin. Here, in the Old Testament, God was doing the same thing. There's nothing else I can do. I'm just going to let Nebuchadnezzar come on in because that's I've been protecting you from him all this time. I'm going to let him come in, and we'll see what happens now. Verse 20. Nebuchadnezzar carried into exile to Babylon the remnant who escaped from the sword. They became servants to him and his sons until the kingdom of Persia came to power. The land enjoyed its Sabbath rests. All the time of its desolation it rested until the 70 years were completed in fulfillment of the word of the Lord of Jeremiah. Here the chronicler is actually calling us to reflect on the words of Leviticus 26. You can read it this afternoon if you want, but it's basically God in Leviticus saying, you're about to go and be a nation, and it'll go good for you if you stick with me. But if you rebel, if you ignore, if you do your own thing, 
here's what's going to happen. And there in Leviticus 26, he says, you're going to become taken captive, and the land is going to be desolate. It's going to enjoy its rest until you call out to me. And so here, the person who wrote Chronicles is recognizing, whoa, God, what he said is actually happening now. It's a very sad story. But it says there in the end of verse 21, in a fulfillment for the word spoken by Jeremiah. Now, what was this word that Jeremiah spoke? He spoke about 70 years in Jeremiah 29, but actually, if you'll go with me now to Jeremiah 25, we're going to see the actual word about the 70-year captivity spoken by Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 25, and we look at verse 1. Jeremiah 25, verse 1, The word of the Lord... The word came to Jeremiah concerning all the people of Judah in the fourth year of Jehoiakim, son of Josiah, king of Judah, which was the first year of Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Skip to verse 3. Jeremiah is saying this. For 23 years, from the 13th year of Josiah, son of Ammon, king of Judah, until this day, the word of the Lord has come to me and I have spoken to you again and again, but you have not listened. Is anyone in here 23? Close to it. Okay, yeah. Good to see you, Darian. So, 23 years. Can you imagine having to, to preach, to proclaim, to encourage people for 23 years to get back to God? And how successful was it? It was not. He said, you haven't listened. If you think you have a bad job, or if you're sad because you don't have a job at all, we can at least praise God that God has not called you to prophetic ministry. Amen? It was not easy to be a prophet in the Bible. You read about the things that God asked Jeremiah and Ezekiel to do. Jeremiah actually says to God one time, he's like, God, you tricked me. I didn't want this job. You tricked me into it. And there was a period when he said, you know what, I'm just going to hold God's word in. I'm not going to say it. Because every time I say it, bad things happen. And what does he say there? Jeremiah says, but your word became like a burning fire inside of me until I had to let it out. Maybe God will call you to be a prophet in the future. At the present, be glad he's not called you to that ministry. So look at verse 4. And through the Lord, and excuse me, though the word, the Lord, has sent all his servants, the prophets, to you again and again, you have not listened or paid any attention they said to you, turn now each of you from your evil ways and your evil practices so you can stay in the land the Lord gave you and your fathers forever and ever. Do not follow other gods and worship them. Do not provoke me to anger with what your hands have made. Then I will not harm you. You hear God pleading with the people, don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. I don't want to allow harm to come to you. But the people wouldn't listen. Verse 7, but you did not listen to me, declares the Lord. You have provoked me with what your hands have made, and you have brought harm to yourselves. Therefore, the Lord Almighty says this, because you have not listened to me, my words, I will summon all the peoples of the north and my servant Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon. Skip to verse 11. This whole country will become desolate, a desolate wasteland, and these nations will serve the king of Babylon for how long? For 70 years. God says, all right, 
If there's no other way, I'm just going to have to turn you over and see how you like the consequences of your sin. Interestingly enough, in verse 12 and onward, he describes that even though God's allowing Nebuchadnezzar to do these things, Nebuchadnezzar's guilty and he'll be judged too. He says, but there's a time coming when Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon is going to be judged. And that happened. We know that happened. So now we've seen the historical setting in which Jeremiah 29.11 was spoken, was written. Let's go back there as we're going to wrap up here shortly this morning. Got a group of people. In the beginning, God warns them and says, hey, I got a good plan. Stick with me. You'll be okay. If you don't stick with me, bad things are going to happen. You're going to be taken captive. He sends prophet after prophet. They ignore his warnings. Jeremiah says specifically, hey, 70-year captivity. But you haven't listened, so this is what's going to happen. But in the midst of that, we find some glimmers of hope. And I suggest this morning that these are where we can find our greatest hope and encouragement from Jeremiah 29, 11. Because I can't stand up here and promise that God is going to make you wealthy. I would love it if God would make all of us wealthy. Amen? Amen. I hope he does. But, But that's not what this verse is intended to mean. But notice the encouragement we can take from it. In the midst of a 70-year timeout, a 70-year grounding, the people have been so rebellious that God had to allow a pagan king to haul them off to his nation. They lost their homes, they lost everything. In the midst of all that, you'd think that God would be super angry and super just desiring to give them what they deserve. But in the midst of all of that, what God is actually saying is, I still care about you. I know the plans, I, have the, I know the thoughts I have for you. And I have good plans for you. I told you there are two lessons we're taking away this morning. Lesson number one is that God was able to look beyond the difficult situation to the good things ahead. And we too can do the same. I don't know specifically what God wants to do in your life, but I do know he does have good plans because the second coming is going to happen someday soon. Amen? Amen. And God has definitely good plans in the kingdom. So when you're going through difficulty, take some time to think about that song we sung, In a Little While We're Going Home. There's a rest beyond. You may be tired here today, But there's rest coming. There's that rest in heaven with Jesus forever and ever and ever. You may not have enough money today, but in heaven, we're not even going to worry about money. You might have aches and pains that bother you, that keep you from sleeping well, that keep you from doing the things you want to do. But in heaven, we're not going to ever have aches and pains. Amen? Amen. Lesson number one, in your difficult circumstances now, remember the good news ahead. Remember the good promises that God has for us in the future. And lesson number two, in the midst of all this punishment, in the midst of their wickedness and their rebellion, God still loved them deeply. God still had good plans for them. God still wanted them to prosper. 
I don't know what messes you've made in your life. Maybe something that happened this last week, maybe this morning, maybe just a general trend in your life where you realize you've made some choices you wish you hadn't have made. Maybe you feel this morning like you are in captivity to the circumstances of your life. Whatever sins you've committed, God wants to forgive them and know that God is not only just forgiving them, he's loving you in the midst of it. He thinks good thoughts towards you. And even if he has to allow consequences from your actions, God still has a good plan. He's thinking positive thoughts towards you, loving you, uh, as our wonderful children's story told us. Even when we make mistakes, God still cares. Number one, look beyond your circumstances to the good and glorious coming of Jesus. And number two, remember in your mistakes that God has forgiven you, if you ask, and God loves and cares for you. How many of you want to claim these promises, these blessings in your life today? Lord, here we are. We're your people. We make mistakes. And at times it feels like Nebuchadnezzar has taken us and and we're captive. Um, More specifically, it feels like sometimes we're captive of our decisions, captive of the devil and his his servants, but we don't want to be held hostage. Lord, we want deliverance, and we want to remember when times are tough that you have good plans indeed. We don't know specifically what they are uh, here on this earth, but we do know someday you're coming back to to reveal the very awesome plans of an earth made new. And we're thankful again this morning that you love us so much, whether we're good or bad, whether we feel good or feel bad today, help us to remember you love us deeply. You have good thoughts towards us, and you just can't wait to see us soon. That's our desire this morning. We thank you and love you. And let all God's saints say, Amen. God bless you. We'll see you very soon. Have a happy Sabbath.